Welcome to Money Talks, a series of interviews with me, Liam Halligan, Economics and Business Editor of GB News. In this episode, I talk to Edward Chancellor, the well-known financial historian, author, journalist and investment strategist. Edward's new book, The Price of Time, The Real Story of Interest, is an account of the impact of central banks' policy of ultra-low interest rates and quantitative easing since the 2008 global financial crisis. His previous books include Devil Take the Hindmost, A History of Financial Speculation, which has been translated into many languages and was the New York Times Book of the Year. After reading history at both Cambridge and Oxford, Chancellor worked for Lazard Brothers and has since contributed to numerous publications, including the Financial Times, Wall Street Journal and Money Week. The price of time is highly critical of global central banks, whose policies, Edward Chancellor argues, have unleashed inflation and brought the world to the brink of another financial crisis. Edward, great to see you here on The Money. Thanks a lot for joining us. It strikes me that the the main thrust of your book is that whenever we have particularly low interest rates for an extended period of time, we end up with lots of financial turmoil. Well, interest rates have been very low for an extended period of time. Well, yeah, that is part of the main thrust of the book. And I well, I cite uh, the great Victorian financial journalist Walter Badgett, who made this comment that John Bull can stand many things, but he cannot stand 2%. What Badgett means by that is that when interest rates go down to 2%, people need a bit more money, so they start speculating. They start doing impossible things. He said they... They cha- the, the, the burgers of, of Amsterdam started buying impossible tulips. They, <laughs> they make um, canals to Kamchatka, sell ice skates to the torrid zone and so forth. So what we see from the 19th century, and I thought, actually, I, you can trace it back even earlier than that, is that the periods of, of easy money are associated with the build-ups of great speculation and then financial crisis. Many people will recognise what you just said and relate to it. You know, pensioners saving and getting what we call negative real interest rates. When the interest rate is less than the rate of inflation, you're losing money in real terms on your savings. And by God, the interest rate's lower than the rate of inflation at the moment. As you know, interest in recent years has been lower than in five millennia of history. The advent of negative interest, a sort of tax on savings, is the, has never been seen before. And savings uh, interest is, after all, an inducement to, to save, but also a return on your savings. So the era of negative, of negative and very low real interest rates has actually b- damaged pensioners and savers tremendously. I must say, and I'm not just saying this because you're in front of me. It is a personal pleasure for me that you've written this book, The Price of Time, The Real Story of Interest, because I have, as you know, my column has been banging on since the 2008-09 financial crisis about the dangers of ultra-low interest rates, about the dangers of so-called quantitative easing, this massive expansion of central bank balance sheets. It strikes me, Edward Chancellor, and I, I, I wonder if you agree that in the aftermath of that financial crisis in 2008, when it looked as if you know a lot of the world's banking system was about collapsed, to collapse, ATMs were about to stop working, that would have led to civic unrest, riots, you know, proper breakdown 
uh, of society in some parts of the world. It strikes me at that time, emergency measures were justifiable. Quantitative easing, the expansion of central bank balance sheets, ultra low interest rates were justifiable. But then what was meant to be emergency medicine became like a kind of lifestyle choice. It was a drug and the drug, we took the drug for 12, 13 years. And the more we took it, the more we liked it. And you saw that with the with the great money printing during the COVID lockdowns, with massive growth in the money supply and lower interest rates than ever. Now, go back to your early qualms about quantitative easing, central bank money printing. There weren't many of us at the time no, who were questioning I know, it. I know, but, but we got it slightly wrong because initially that that money remained, so to speak, trapped in the financial system. But the central bankers then became complacent and thought the money would always remain in the, trapped in the financial system. So then they started financing and directly financing the governments. And it's the moment they started financing the governments and the distribution of government payouts to people who were staying at home doing nothing that they actually caused tremendous surge in demand. And that creates the conditions for uh, uh, you know, classic inflation. So I think you know, you and I were a bit early. From my perspective, it gave me a long time to work on this book because I knew some big problems were building up. And in a way, COVID came along and the lockdowns came along just as I was sort of finishing off the book. And I could tell already, you know, at the time when the central bank was saying there was no inflation around, that the infl they'd already unleashed the inflation into the system that was going to bring this to an end. I think the thrust of what you're saying, and it, it's something that I agree with, I've written it in the, in the past, that pre-COVID QE, much of it did stay within the banking system. Some of it went out into the housing market and it blew bubbles within equity markets and bond markets, but it didn't get into general circulation. But post-COVID QE is much that that money is much more out there and much more likely to cause inflation, right? Yeah. Absolutely. So it took a long time. And in fact, actually, in the book, I cite an economist uh, in the 18th century who's following John Law's Mississippi bubble. John Law was, as I say, is the mm. first instigator of quantitative easing. And the economist uh, banker Richard Candelin says, well, you know, the, the central bank buying bonds does not, doesn't cause uh, any, uh, any problems at first because the money is trapped. But these are dangerous operations that are like a bomb that eventually goes off. There is no escape. And what we've seen and over a more protracted period, so 13 year period, is there was no escape from the quantitative easing. There was no escape from the, the negative and zero interest rates. And the only escape, I'm afraid, has been the onset of what looks like a new crisis. Edward Chancellor, you're a very learned and highly respected financial journalist. It strikes me that you're saying that we've set ourselves up for a crash with this endless quantitative easing, with these ultra-low interest rates for an extended period of time. Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm, I, yes, I am. And I'm sure you, we've all written about it in the past, that after the financial crisis, we talked about the central bankers and policymakers kicking the can. They didn't want to deal with the problems. They wouldn't even acknowledge the source of the problems of the financial crisis, which after all came from the very low interest rates that the Federal Reserve instituted in 2001. They denied it was anything to do with, with, uh, with, with easy money policies under the Greenspan Federal Reserve and under Ben Bernanke. They said it was just liquidity crisis and mm. so on. So we, 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 what we did is we had a sort of hair of the dog 
that bit you, well, you know if you're going to have that, you know, take the hair of the dog, you're going to wake up with an even bigger hangover at some stage in future. And I think we haven't quite got there yet because the penny hasn't completely dropped. But as you see, you know, the stock markets are down 20% plus, the housing markets, which you've written about, driven into bubble levels all around the world by these ultra-low mortgage rates. They're beginning to falter. The cost of financing a US mortgage now has, has doubled in the course of this year. So you're going to see the, these housing bubbles beginning to deflate financial, um, you know, financial asset prices coming down. And then I think probably debt problems surfacing. So it's sort of a, a sort of slow motion train wreck of the type that we saw in 2007 onwards. So the logic of your position, Edward, and, you know, I say again, you are a, a journalist, a financial analyst of extremely high repute. So the logic of your position is sell all your shares if you've got any. And if you're a person under 30 waiting to buy a house because it's unaffordable, Wait a bit more, and soon they'll be cheaper. Is that what you're saying? Well, you're getting, I mean, you're, getting, you're putting some words into my mouth. The, the, there are some markets where you know, we won't go into the details, but some parts of the world where equity markets are reasonably cheap. I'd say, okay, Japan, for instance, mm. parts of Europe, but that Europe has its own problems. Parts of the emerging market. So I wouldn't say throw, you know, get rid of all your uh, equities. The, in fact, again, as you know, equities over the long run provide an inflation hedge. They just tend to take a bit of a down hit during inflation. It's all about time in the market rather than timing the market, right? Yes, but I would go back to your second point about housing. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd say, I'd say to my nephews and nieces who have been priced out of mm. the London housing market for the last 12 years and getting extremely irritated about it to bide their time because I think that, yeah, I think the prices probably will come down to the sort of level they were when, you know, we left university. And it was reasonable to expect that if you worked hard, you might be able to afford a flat. We're unusual, aren't we, among financial journalists, you and I, among columnists, because we have been focused on these issues over the last 10 to 15 years or so. The dangers of lower interest rates, the dangers of quantitative easing. Do you think... Our so-called profession, it's more of a trade, isn't it, journalism, even financial journalism. Do you think we've been guilty of complacency? Have we not held the central banks to account enough? Have we been too mesmerised by the money printing, the rising financial markets, the kind of hoopla of the age that we've lived in up until now? Um, well, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily blame the financial journalists alone. I think you have to say, I, to my mind, the problem lies with the economists, both the academic economists and the central bank economists themselves. They know nothing. One of the reasons I wrote this history of interest is it became pretty clear to me that the central bankers and the economists know nothing about interest. They've forgotten the function of interest, the deep and rich history of interest, and the vital functions that interest serves in a capitalist economy. I, I say in the book that 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 it that capitalism without interest cannot function. It is, so to speak, the, the keystone that holds the system together. So, yes, the cent I think a lot of journalists don't really understand it. They tended to sort of take their lead from what the central bankers say. You know, in America, if you can get the job of being the Fed watcher on the Wall Street Journal, that's a pretty cushy number because you just Basically but don't become. say anything that annoys the Fed. Don't say anything that annoys the Bank of England. I've been in journalism a long time, and that's, I would say, that our journalists have been far too um, mesmerized by the central bankers. They have been far too slow 
to deploy the kind of analytical skills that you've deployed in writing this book and making the statements you're now stating. Yeah, so the the central bankers were probably given a free ride. You know, they, I th- and I think one of the reasons they were given a free ride is first of all, as you say, they sort of patched everything up after the financial crisis. Do you remember uh, Ben Bernanke, then chairman of the Reser- Federal Reserve, was made the Time Magazine Person of the Year in two thousand nine. I mean, never mind the fact that he was largely the person responsible for the uh, for the fin- financial crisis. So people only looked at their the way they patched things up. The other thing that I think people are beginning to understand more now is that the as uh, the, the sort of inflation of asset prices over following the low interest rates and the quantitative easing and so forth, that, that made a lot of people who owned houses, who, uh, who owned stocks, particularly happy. I mean, what's not to like if your house is going up 10% a year and your, your equity portfolio is going up 15% a year, you're going to think the central banks have done a good job. The trouble is that when the system then all starts falling to pieces, you get inflation, rising interest rates, and the asset prices come down, you say, actually, hang on a sec, I wasn't as rich as I thought I was. Mm. In fact, not only was I not as rich, but I haven't saved as much as I should have saved. And then you actually then have some new problems, which is, hang on a sec, perhaps I can't afford to retire now, Mm. given that I'm not as rich. So I think when you get to that point, then everyone turns around and say, hang on a sec, these central bankers are sort of not um, not what they profess to be. And of course, you just described the possible dilemmas of people who had the assets in the first place. How about others who haven't a, a whole generation of youngsters locked out of home ownership as you say why should they support capitalism when they've got no capital i mean in the end edward if the system you know if 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 smart financially literate people who run central banks who write in the kind of posh newspapers where you and i have written for our careers if we can't solve these problems and provide a framework that allows ordinary people to work hard keep hold of most of their money uh, and build a little bit of wealth and freedom from themselves, aren't we going to have a more systemic meltdown, a, a, a crisis of confidence in capitalism? Yeah, I, no, I think so. Now, what, a chapter in that book is is called Let Them Eat Credit. I mean, people, there was a comment, you know, I didn't make out that comment, it's from uh, the former... Marie Antoinette, wasn't it? No, no, it was, it was the former <laughs> Not. Uh, governor, of the, governor of the of Reserve Bank in India, Rajan Rajaram. And he, and he said, you know, people, if people are not earning enough, there's no wage growth. There's the other thing is that the very low interest rates dampen productivity growth. And that means dampening wage growth. It dampened the return on capital. That means your savings. And it made it harder to buy houses. So the cost of security of healthcare, housing, education went through the roof. People, as you say, younger people, younger generation had less interest vested in the system. So no wonder they went off to vote for Corbyn or whatever. I mean, in their in their position, I would have done the same too. It's immensely unjust what has happened to the younger generation through these policies. Now, I mean, the interest, you know, the interest rates and interest may seem a bit obscure, but the real social and political consequences of what the Germans called Strafzins and punishment rates Mm. are actually there for us to see. And I think, and I would link this to the rise of populism, just as the hyperinflation of Germany in the 1920s led to the rise of sort of political extremism in Germany. There we see these sort of uh, nasty political consequences from monetary uh, matters. And the trouble is, I'm afraid, that given that we're now at the stage of the inflation stage, that 
isn't going to go away. The inflation, as you as you know, is a, an expression of political discontent, but it also exacerbates it, the political discontent. So you would need very good policymakers, very good statesmen to try and navigate your way through this difficult juncture. And there's no there's no sign that the that I can see from any government. Uh, except perhaps the the German government of the 2000s, Schäu- Wolfgang Schäuble, the mm. finance minister, who was c- constantly complaining. He do, about does it. get this stuff. Schäuble yeah. did get yeah. it, yeah, but most of them don't get it. They, they, they. The government, the government, the, the politicians themselves have have very little inkling of the problems that have caused by 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 the by monetary policy. They've sort of they've they they thought it gave them a. A free pass, you know. As Boris Johnson said, the government wants to put its arms around you. Never, why not? Is the money is free, but the trouble is, the money is now costing a bit more, and the government's arms are not quite as long as he as he thought they were. I think you're being overly generous. It's not only the politicians that don't get it; a lot of the so-called technocrats at the central banks don't seem to get it either. I mean, let me let me chance my arm here, uh, despite your natural. D- tact and, and, and politeness, Edward, what were you thinking as you watched for all of last year, Andrew Bailey and the Monetary Policy Committee insist that inflation was transitory? I mean, anybody that looked well, at financial markets, anybody that looked at uh, commodity prices, anybody looked at, you know, five-year yields or, or spreads, the sort of thing that you and I look at on our phones when we were waiting for trains to come. It was clear there was inflation building. Yeah, but I would go back even further to the beginning of the COVID lockdowns. When they locked down these these societies, they dismantled or put the, the their economic structures into into the deep freeze and printed the money as if we could, you know So the demand went nuts. Yeah. So the supply side was curtailed by lockdown inflation was inevitable it seemed i mean inevitable is a strong word to use particularly when one has made sort of let's say inaccurate <laughs> inflation forecasts in the past but um i yes i thought it was in the pipeline and then and then i think the central bankers and the politicians were extraordinarily complacent and, but again this one of the reasons i wrote the book is they they didn't seem to understand what they were playing with. The, the, the economist Hyman Minsky, uh, mm. the, the maverick economist who, who became popular after the financial crisis, uh, he was dead by then, but no one, and no one paid attention to him when he was alive. But he made this comment. It's that, always a good career move, move in rock music and econ- economics to die yeah, in death, terms of the popularity can, of your can work. raise your reputation. Yeah. Anyhow, Minsk, it's what I'm banking on anyway. Minsky said about, um, he said, no one up there understands economics. And I think it, it's a sort of bold claim for me to make. Um, and bear in mind, I was trained as a historian, not an mm. economist. Mm. But the more I've worked in the field of sort of financial economic history mm. and economic thought, the more I see that a sort of what, what you might call a trained incapacity mm. of the sort of modern uh, policymaking economist. And, and I think that those people will, have, will, will learn. Uh, and I'm hoping that this book will provide... Um, you know, if, if, if it gets a broad enough readership, then questions will be asked that these people will need to answer. Their, their attitude in the past, Liam, and you'll know this as well as I do, is to just ignore mm. criticism. To, they have a very arrogant approach. Or even to vilify the people who are putting forward the criticism, however well qualified, Edward. Um, yes, but they prefer them to be outside the system where they can ignore them. And I think now... 
the, you know, go back to Governor Bailey at the Bank of England saying he's, he, he confessed to being helpless. Now, when a central banker has made extraordinarily poor forecasts and has really sort of jeopardized the financial um, structure of the economy uh, of the system and then says he's helpless, then obviously people are going to have second thoughts and think, you know, you know, what has he done and why are we in this mess? Is the Bank of England bedeviled with groupthink, given that there seems to have been so little debate, so, almost a determination to not look out the window and to see what was going on for much of last year, and indeed quite a lot of this year too. So, you, I mean, you, you spotted that Andy Haldane, the, the very bright chief economist of the Bank of England, who had been mooted uh, to, to, as a potential governor until this, um, I don't know if one can call him a pen pusher, uh, Andrew Bailey got the top job and, and uh, Haldane quit. And he quit because he thought the bank's uh, securities purchases, its quantitative easing could come to should come to an end. Uh, he said this, what, in the middle of last year, or perhaps a bit earlier. He said that the job of the central bank was to take away the punch bowl uh, after the party got going. It's a famous comment. And he said it was, you know, that the, the Bank of England had failed in doing that. So, and that's, you know, what happens if you sit in a committee with groupthink. The person who doesn't join in the group think is sort of pushed pushed out of the group because which is anathema to what independent central banking should be we we need some grit in the oyster we need independent thinkers of caliber enough that they can have their independent thoughts and not be described as mad or vilified or pushed out well i mean i i wonder about independent independent central banking the the you know that the 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 Reichsbank after the first after the first world war the Reichsbank that was responsible for uh completely destroying the uh the the, the German currency and that, that that was a that was a an independent central bank created by the allies or institutionally created by the allies after the um the, the the first world war so and the, and the and the when 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 it was eventually time to bring germany's hyperinflation to an end and the the german government agreed to do so the the governor of of the reichsbank called uh, rudolf havenstein he said no this is my independence you can't do this and he he actually died of a heart attack in his office on the day the hyperinflation came to an end so i don't think you can put any trust in independent central banking and in a way if you go back to how it was in the mid-1990s, then when it was the Chancellor's resp- ultimate responsibility where the interest rate are, now then, you know, at the moment, the, 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 you know, the, the Treasury, Rishi Sunak, can disavow any responsibility for what's going on. But in fact, actually, a political responsibility for what the interest rate policy is and and its consequences, whether these ultra-low rates and all those consequences, or whether the inflation, then actually returning the politicians to their responsibility would, you know, br- you know, br- taking back control, to use a phrase, might might not be a bad idea. I don't think central bank independence has worked in this country. Final question. I'd actually disagree with you on that with all due respect, Edward. I think the problem we've got is that our independent central bank isn't independent at all because the Monetary Policy Committee is dominated by Treasury 
civil servants controlled by Whitehall. I think independent central banking only works if it is genuinely independent. And if we lose proper independent central banking, we're very close to losing it now and go back to politicised central banking. I think that's that would be folly. Yeah, well, so perhaps we have neither fish nor fowl now, so we probably don't really. Just, I mean, I, yes, a very good central banking. Or go back into the 19th century when you had a gold standard, you didn't really need an economist in charge of it. The, the bank just had, the Bank of England had a, had a gold in its vault. When the gold left the vault, bank would stick up interest rates, the economy would contract, have a bit of a bust in the city of London, and then the, the ship would right itself. And in, in, in those days, they just had city merchants sitting on the court. There were no, there were no commercial bankers. There were not such thing as an economist. That was a sort of 20th century aberration to have economists at central banks. Well, it's a very wide ranging book. You've stuck your neck out and you've criticised the monetary authorities, Edward Chancellor. And I must say, uh, I'm fully behind you when you do that. And it's been really interesting to talk to you. Thanks for joining me on Money Talks. Thanks. Thanks a lot for listening to Money Talks with me, Liam Halligan, Economics and Business Editor of GB News. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube or wherever you're listening. Do subscribe to this podcast and also check out my daily television show, On The Money, at 1pm Monday to Friday on GB News or via the GB News app. GB News, Britain's news channel.